Oh, about ten years ago, there was a wave of films that came out. Space films like um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Star Wars, and then more recently, a few years ago, E.T., the extraterrestrial. Americans are fascinated with the idea of an alien coming to visit their planet and checking in on them. And there's a common theme I've noticed in all of these space films. And that is, the alien being is usually much more intelligent than we are, right? And very saddened by what he sees on the earth. Like, oh, you earthlings have really made a mess of your planet. And we're, we've come to rescue you and to help you and give you insight. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but the Christmas story in the Gospel of Luke is like the ultimate close encounter episode. Uh, heaven is as extraterrestrial as you can get. God invaded the earth. He became a baby. He lived for 33 years in a hostile environment. Some of you are involved in cross-cultural ministry. You've traveled from the United States, the good old U.S. of A., to a third world country. Mexico, by the way, is a third world country. Or you've traveled to Asia. Do you know the feeling, what it's like to go into a third world country? As soon as you step off the airplane or you cross the border, it is quite evident that you've left America. The feeling, the conversation, uh, sometimes the stench in the air gives it away. It's a shock. If you live there for a long period of time, you go through what is called culture shock. You're not used to it. You're not. You're used to refrigerators and beds and air conditioning and heating and carpet. And you go to a country like that and it is a shock to your system. Can you imagine the cultural shock it was for Jesus to come to this earth? All he knew was the environment of heaven, the atmosphere of heaven, fellowship with the Father, fellowship with the Holy Spirit. To be thrust to the planet Earth in a hostile environment among a people who crucified him. We haven't read a portion of this text yet because in all reality, we really wouldn't need to. Most of you have memorized this portion of Scripture. Even if you're an unbeliever, you've heard this. This is read every year. You have it on your Christmas cards. You might have it tacked up in your home. It's the familiar Christmas story And that's good and bad. It's bad because familiarity can breed complacency. We've heard it so often, so long, it's lost its punch. Think about it. This incident is the hub of history. We center our calendar around this event in Luke 2. 1987 A.D., Anno Domini. The world has never been the same since this event. And yet for so many people, the closest they come to it is having a nativity set in their home. That's it. They really don't grasp the meaning of celebrating a birthday for Jesus Christ. They've never given their lives to Him. I want you to look in verse 1 with me. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee 
to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. When they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. History repeats itself. I had a history professor. I think every class he said this. That's why I memorize it and I say it so often. Those who fail to learn from history are they themselves doomed to relive history. They who fail to learn from history are doomed to relive it. History repeats itself. The very first Christmas, the very first event, this event, was a time in which the most significant thing was swallowed up by insignificant things. And history repeats itself. We'll come back to that. Before we jump right into this verse, I'm going to read you a passage out of 1 Corinthians. Listen to this. God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things. The things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. That capsulizes what we read in verses 1 through 7. It's not just a bunch of information that's given us. Luke draws a contrast. You notice in these verses there is... A couple names that stick out. Caesar Augustus in verse 1. And then in verse 2, Quirinius, the governor of Syria. And then we read about a couple events that are happening, right? A taxation that goes throughout the whole world. And a census that needs to be taken. And everyone has to leave their hometown where they're living and go to the town of their fathers to have the census taken. That's a massive event. Now Caesar Augustus, let me just tell you about him. He was on the lips of every Jew who lived in Israel at this time. Everyone knew about him. Probably the whole known world knew about him. He was the supreme dictator in Rome. He controlled the events of the world. He brought peace to the world. He uh, settled the uh, atrocities and the problems that Julius Caesar had before him. He was a brilliant man. But he wanted control. Now, Caesar Augustus means Caesar of the gods, or Caesar who is born of deity. He gave himself that name. He demanded that people worship him as the sovereign Lord, burn incense to him, and commit their lives to him. He said that he was God, God in human flesh. Now, he's a bigwig. Then we have Quirinius, the governor of Syria. He's also mentioned. Quirinius was a name that was also on the lips of the Jewish people. But very recently, what I mean by that is that he was an unknown until Caesar used him to get at the Jewish people to tax them. When he wanted money, he would always use the local officials, and he used Quirinius. He wanted money from the Jewish people. The events that were happening at the birth of Christ were, to the people of the day, very significant. 
Caesar Augustus wanted control, and to have control, he had to do two things. Number one, he had to shift the power locally from the Jews to Rome. He did that by taking away the right of capital punishment. That is, the Jews had their own right to dispense law in their own courts. They could say, you're guilty of the death penalty, you die. Rome had just taken it away. Rome was in control. The Jews had no power in their own courts. Number two, there was a taxation. Let's subjugate the people. Let's oppress the people by taking taxes from them. And then we can have the revenue to do all the things that we want to do. Quirinius was sort of the puppet for Caesar at that point. Now here's my, this is what I'm getting to. These names and these events were the significant events at the time of Jesus. If you'd ask anybody in the street who Quirinius was, they'd say, oh man, that guy makes me sick. We've just been taxed and we have to go to the home of our fathers and our mothers and forefathers and we have to have a census taken. They're going to take our money. Everybody knew about Quirinius. Everybody knew about Caesar. They were fed up with the whole thing. On the other hand, we have a story about a peasant couple, Joseph and Mary, who gave, in verse 7, birth to their firstborn son, wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, which is a feeding hole, a feeding trough for animals, because there was no room for him in the inn. Now, everybody's talking about Caesar and Quirinius and taxation and census. And sandwiched in between all of those bigwig names is a peasant couple giving birth to a baby in Bethlehem. How insignificant to the people of that day. We live in 1987, 1,987 years after what event? This event. The event of the taxes? No. The event of a census being taken? No. What event is it? The event of the birth of this baby child in Bethlehem. When we look back, what seems insignificant to us today? Oh, Quirinius. I mean, who's he? Augustus. These are just details in the story, right, as we look back. What's the significant detail about the story? Jesus was born. The Messiah was born into the world. But not so 2,000 years ago. My point is, is that 2,000 years ago, it was just the opposite. The significant things were the bigwigs, the taxes, the census, the problems that it created. That was on the headlines of every paper. Who cares about a baby being born? Caesar's expanding his empire. We have to pay taxes. You see, the most significant event was swallowed up by all of the other things in life, the insignificant events. What a contrast. Think about it. Caesar, a baby. Rome, Bethlehem, a cow town. Over here in Rome, Caesar is sleeping underneath fine linen on a golden bed, attended by servants, soldiers, pampered. Over here, the Messiah is in a feeding trough with animals around him and the stench of a corral. What a contrast. You see how the insignificant swallowed up the significant Jesus' birth. However, there was a prophecy given, oh, eight centuries before this event in the book of Micah. Let me read it to you. Let me tell it to you. It says, But you, Bethlehem, 
Though you be small among the little towns of Judah, yet from you shall come forth the one who is to be the ruler in all of Israel. Eight centuries before Augustus and Quirinius sat down over a cup of coffee and said, let's tax everybody. God told them that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And that taxation, that decree to get everybody to go back to their hometown, was simply God's method of enabling Joseph and Mary to travel 80 miles to Bethlehem to have Jesus, according to Scripture. You see, this bigwig, Augustus, was a puppet in the hands of God. He was an errand boy for the prophet Micah. God was using him to fulfill his plan ultimately. Things haven't changed much, have they? The insignificant still swallows up the significant every Christmas, right? I mean, we're Christians. We always tell people, hey, it's Jesus' birthday. Hey, don't get into the commercialism. But the world does. We're swallowed up by it. Every year, really no change. I want to make an appeal. Please. All of us who are believers, let's change this year. I'm not saying throw away your Christmas tree. Say bah humbug. I'm not saying that at all. I see no problem in that. But please, the most significant things are relationships. Relationship with God and relationships with people. They're the most neglected many times. Oh, we get together and we celebrate. But did you know that Christmas is the loneliest time of the year for many people? People feel alienated because they remember a friend or a spouse, a relative dying around the holiday season, or they themselves have poor health and they can't get out anymore. It's not a time of joy for them. People aren't visiting them. They feel alienated. History is being made at the cash registers. And relationships are being neglected. The most significant things are being neglected. I'll tell you, I do enjoy Christmas, but I don't like it because of the stress that it produces in people's lives. Walk into the stores Christmas Eve. See if everyone's saying, ho, ho, ho. Man, they've got that look, I've got to get out of here, I've got to get this wrapped, I've got to get this for so-and-so, and that for my brother, and that for my sister-in-law. Such a stress-producing time, and the significant aspect is lost. Let's refocus our attention. I have a letter here. It's my favorite Christmas letter to Santa Claus. Listen to this. Dear Santa Claus, you'll probably be surprised to receive this letter from an adult. You may even be more surprised as you read it to find that the writer is neither a maiden aunt nor a disgruntled bachelor. I'm a young mother. It isn't my intention, Santa, to hurt your feelings. You see, my family has paid tribute to you for many past Christmases. My husband and I, when we were in our childhood, and now our children, who are six, four, and two, they still care about you, Santa. How much they care about you has proved a problem in recent years. It is threatening to happen again. Our children worship you. They speak of you constantly. They watch diligently for your December 25th appearance. Can you tell us, Santa, what have you done to deserve this faithfulness from two generations? Can you promise any future consideration in exchange for past loyalties? During a family crisis, have you ever told us, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world? Were you ever with us during sorrow to comfort us with these words, Your sorrow shall be turned into joy? And Santa, 
There have been some doubtful times. Where were you? We didn't hear from you this calming message. I will never, ever leave you or forsake you. We've come to the conclusion that you've been less than a friend should be. And we've been shortchanged, Santa. My three children stood on a windy, cold main street just to get a glimpse of your jolly face. They've written you heartfelt letters every year. They've gone to the department stores to whisper in your ear. They've worked hard at being good in anticipation of your Christmas Eve visit. They've done all this, as their father and I did before them. But there's going to be a change this Christmas, Santa. There isn't going to be any Santa Claus worship in our home. We've decided to focus our attention and adoration on another being, one who has stood by us the other 364 days of the year, one who has comforted us during the sorrowful and doubtful times, and yes, the times of crisis also. It's true that your name will probably be mentioned around our house, Santa. Old habits are tough to break abruptly. But someone else's name will be mentioned much more often. The children will probably work just as hard at being good, but I hope they'll do it for a better reason, one that will last the whole year long, to bring glory to another's name. The other one, Jesus, has given us so much more, and not just on Christmas Eve, you may call our family fickle, Santa, but we don't mind. On this December 25th and all through the year, we want a comforter, a healer, a strengthening king. We don't want a myth any longer. We've talked it over. This year we've decided to give tribute, honor, worship to someone who really deserves them, to the true giver, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Love it. Best letter. A change. Let's focus our priorities. Now, in verse 8, it says, There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Admit it, folks, we have a Sunday school view of this event, don't we? We get our pictures of what this was like from the Christmas cards that we get sent every year. Or from the pictures that are up on store windows. This last May, I was able to spend a day in a Bedouin tent in Israel. People who are nomads, who travel from tent to tent, and they watch sheep. They're shepherds for a living. I can't really describe it to you in that short of time, but um, perhaps this would help. You ever been to the state fair, right? Every year in the state fair, there's the animal exhibits. Ever walked into those things? You know when you've entered, haven't you? Go inside of an animal exhibit and camp out there for a couple weeks. Smell those smells. Raise your family there. That's what it was like to be a shepherd. And by the way, it is boring work. It is the height of mediocrity. They didn't say, All right, another night to watch the sheep. They thought, Oh man, those stupid sheep i got to look after again. What a boring night this is going to be out there on the hillsides of Bethlehem. Let me tell you something else about shepherds. They were the most despised people group at the time of Jesus. Did you know that? During the time of David, they were exalted. They were looked at as good, clean workers, but not at the time of Jesus. They were looked at as thieves, uneducated dummies. They were looked down upon by the good folks, the middle class, the upper class. 
It was like a cross between Jethro Bodine and a bandito, I suppose. Uneducated. Who wants them? Now, of all the people that God would send a birth announcement to, why would it be shepherds? Why wouldn't he knock on the palace in Rome and say, Caesar, thus saith the Lord, the Messiah has been born. I mean, get the news where it counts. Talk to the L.A. Times, somebody. But shepherds in Bethlehem. What are you doing, Lord? You got the wrong address. God has a special love for common people. Those who are wedged in the mainstream of mediocrity, the nine-to-fivers, the workforce, just the normal everyday Joe. God has a special heart. Did you know in the New Testament it says the common people heard him gladly? It was by and by and large, it was the simple, common, everyday person that followed Jesus. Paul said, not many wise people, not many noble are called, just the simple people. But these shepherds were special, I believe. You see, over in Jerusalem, every day they had a sacrifice in the temple. Every morning and every evening, they took a lamb, they slaughtered it, they spilled its blood, and they sacrificed it on an altar to atone for the sins of the world. Now, to keep two lambs sacrificed every day, you have to have a large supply, right? So the temple officials had their own private flocks. Guess where they were kept? In the fields all around Bethlehem. More than likely, these shepherds were watching and raising the temple sheep who were slaughtered for the sins. And isn't it significant that they were the first ones to see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Lying in a feeding trough, in a manger. Now, the text doesn't tell us But what do you suppose they talked about that night? What do you think their conversation would have been? I don't want to speculate and get off into left field, but certainly if they were talking about what everybody else was talking about, they were talking about Caesar and Quirinius and taking a census and paying taxes. And these were shepherds. And maybe they were thinking, it's not fair. Shlomo, what do you think about this taxation? I don't know, Reuben. Well, why didn't God do something? I mean, why are we so oppressed? Every year it gets worse for the Jewish people. I thought we're God's chosen people. Why didn't God step in and do something? (sighs) Verse 9 says, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were terrified. I wonder what angels look like. Everybody's scared of them. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom God's favor rests. I'm going to read verse 10 to you in the Living Bible. Here's the announcement. Don't be afraid. I bring you the most joyful news ever announced. And it's for everyone. I bring you the most joyful news ever announced, and it's for everyone. Why is it that people picture God as this divine party pooper who wants to steal all the fun out of life? Boy, I used to think of Christians that way. 
When my friends turned to the Lord, they said, hey, I become a Christian. My reaction was, oh, I'm so sorry. What tragic event occurred in your life that caused you to feel like you had nothing else to live for? It's a shame. Because you think, oh, the guy must have really gone through a tough time because most people become Christians only when they're really on the bottom. It's the best news ever announced. Abundant life. And it's for everybody. I saw a bumper sticker one time. I really don't like bumper stickers a whole lot. This one smacked me right between the eyes. I drove down the freeway in California and on a beat-up old Volkswagen bus, there was this bumper sticker that said, Without Jesus, you ain't living. And I thought, wow. I'm talking about what a bummer it is to become a Christian and that just hit me. Without Jesus, you don't even know what life's about. You ain't even living. It's for everyone. It's good news. It's for all people. Now, do you fit in that description? It's for everyone. Does that include you? You see, in our day and age, Jesus is very relative. He's a relativistic Jesus. Oh, I'm glad you became a Christian. I'm so happy for you. That's good for you, not for me. I don't need that kind of a crutch. You need Jesus. If you feel like you need Him, fine, but I don't need Him. We'll just love each other the way we are. And You get yours, I'll get mine. It's for everyone. A Savior is born for everyone. This present that God gave to the world was God's Christmas present. When God gave Jesus, God gave His best. When God gave Jesus, God gave the most He could ever give, His dearest only begotten Son. That is why to reject Jesus Christ is the greatest insult ever that God could be given. To say, look, I don't need to be born again. I don't need to get personal relationship with Jesus like all you people say. I can be religious. I'm good enough. God gave Jesus to die for you so you could have a relationship with Him. To say no thanks is a slap in the face. It's the greatest insult. Because He gave His most, His best. You know that when Jesus walked the earth, He was a very loved individual, wasn't He? By some. And by others, He was a hated individual. He was probably the most loved and hated at the same time individual of His day. There's people that loved him. They followed him. They'd go anywhere. They'd leave their homes, their fishing nets. They'd follow him all over Israel. There's people who hated him, wanted to see him dead. Same way today, isn't it? There's people, when you say Jesus, they go, oh, that's precious. That name is so precious. There's other people, you mention the name of Jesus and brings anger to them. Don't talk about that here. This is the workplace. Now, I think that the greatest form of bigotry is to form an opinion about someone before you've met him personally. If you've never met Jesus and you've already formed an opinion about him, you're a bigot. Prejudice. Why don't you meet him? See what he's like. Invite him into your heart. See how he can change you, motivate you, mold you, satisfy you. That's God's gift to the world. Verse 11. Suddenly, a great company... Oh, that's not verse 11. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Now, verse 11 answers the question who Jesus is going to be. He's a baby now. What's his mission? 
Is he supposed to be a uh, picture in a Christmas card? Or a figure in a nativity set? Or a person of folklore that we can tell our children about just for kicks? No, he's a savior. You know what a savior is? Only sinners need saviors. Only someone who needs forgiveness needs a savior. I got a Christmas card this year, and the message, the content, is the richest I've ever received. It says, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a Savior. That's who He is. He's a Savior. He's one who washes people from their sins. That's the purpose of Christmas. That's the purpose of Christmas. If we look at the manger and fail to see the cross in the distance, we have missed the whole point of Christmas. He came to die. He came to be a sacrifice, a lamb, having his body split open. There is no room for him in the inn, it says in verse 7. The only room for Jesus was on a cross. That's where people had room for him. That's the meaning of Christmas. It says that he's going to be Christ the Lord. Let me tell you what that means. Christ means Messiah. Christ the Lord is a Greek construction that means both words are equivalent. It's not the Lord's Christ. It is Christ who is the Lord. This baby was not just the Messiah, a human man. He was God, born in human flesh. Supreme, omnipotent, holy God laying in a feeding trough in Bethlehem. That's who he was. He's a savior. He is Christ. He is the Lord. Now let's look at the song that they sing. Suddenly, there we come, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Did you know that it was a custom when a baby was born in a village for all the local musicians who knew the parents to come by and play songs to greet the child into the world? Well, Joseph and Mary were in Bethlehem. They're peasants. They're strangers. Nobody knows who they are. There's no musicians out there to greet them and to congratulate them. So God sends his own band. He sends his own angels to make up for the fact that there was no earthly greeting. He sends angels saying, glory to God in the highest. And then it says, on earth, peace. If I were a cynic, I'd scoff at that statement. If I didn't know any better. Peace? On earth peace? Ha! What is this angel, a liar? Where's the peace on earth? Nuclear arms build up. Every 24 minutes somebody is murdered. Every 10 minutes somebody is raped. Under the bridges in Albuquerque people are dying of starvation and cold. Peace? Look at the rest of the verse. On earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Or more accurately, peace to men in whom God is well pleased. Is God well pleased with your life? If he is, you have fullness of peace. Maybe you lack peace because you don't have a relationship with him. You see, peace is not just given as a blanket promise to everybody. Oh, peace on earth. 
One planet, one people, please. That's not what he's talking about. It says in Isaiah, there is no peace, saith the Lord unto the wicked. You who know the Prince of Peace have peace within your heart. If you don't know Jesus, there's no peace. The promise is to people who know the Lord, on whom God's favor rests, or people in whom God is well pleased. What a story. God came as a baby. I heard a story of a uh, a European king who would do strange things, like slip out of his royal court, unbeknownst to anybody, and walk incognito amongst the people of the kingdom. And he'd go wherever they hung out, and he'd just sort of listen to them. He wanted to hear what they said about him, what the government was like. If they thought, you know that king, he's really a jerk, he'd know about it firsthand. Or maybe they'd say, oh, we love the king, or we need this, we want that. And he'd come back, and the royal court would say, king, please, please, don't do this. This uh, this could hurt security. You could get snuffed out there. The king said, you don't understand. How can I rule my people unless I know how they live? I need to know how they live. God sent Jesus to know what it was like. Not just sheltered in heaven, but a baby born on the earth. So he knows what it's like when you say, Lord, I'm suffering. Lord, I'm feeling this. God became a man and walked amongst us for 33 years and then was crucified. Perhaps your greatest need this morning is a Savior. It's not an economist. It's not a Christmas present. It's receiving God's Christmas present. It's having forgiveness of sins. It's having a full and satisfying life. Perhaps you've gone from place to place, experience to experience, drinking fountain to drinking fountain, and you're still thirsty. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink. It's Christmas. We give presents. But what present do you give God? It's like someone said, what do you give the God who has everything? I'll tell you what you give him. Give him your life. Oh, but I'm already a Christian. Renew your commitment. Oh, I'm religious. Well, maybe you need to make a personal commitment to the Lord. Look, I'm not against Jesus. I don't want to be born again, but I'm not against him. I'm not his enemy. Jesus said, if you are not for me, you are against me. I think the Lord is calling many of you to make a personal commitment to him. A lot of you only attend church at Christmas and Easter time or every now and then with your relatives. Now, what did the shepherds do? Watch. Verse 15. When the angels left them and got into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see the thing that has happened which the Lord told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all of the things they heard and seen, and it was just as they had been told. You see, the angel didn't say, okay, all I want you to do is hear my song and my sermon. Bye. He told them to do something, didn't he? He said, go find Jesus. Go find the Savior. He didn't say, well, the show's over, shepherds. Time to go home. He said, now you go find him. I'm going to ask many of you today to do that same thing, to make a decision for Jesus Christ, to find the one who's been searching for you for so long. Let's pray. Lord, you broke through mediocrity 
A group of people who were just shepherds, lowly, common people, who really didn't have great experiences. All they knew was fields and rocks and dirt and stars and sheep. You changed their lives. They were never the same. And they came and they worshipped you. Lord, I pray that you change the lives of many people here. Lord, I pray that right now your Holy Spirit would break through crusty hearts. And Lord, that people would be softened and would accept you, Lord. 